0: Good evening. Uh, our lesson tonight is going to be from the book of Matthew again, and we're going to look at another scene where Jesus is on a mountain. But as we build to that, I want to start off by reading, uh, reading something from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7, I make reference to it quite a bit in my preaching because I think it provides a framework that a lot of the New Testament is written within. Uh, I think it provides kind of a, a dominant worldview of a lot of the Pharisees and even of Jesus and his disciples as they uh, approach what Jesus is doing with the kingdom of God. Jesus 's ministry is about the kingdom of heaven, and it 's not about the kingdom of heaven on its own without respect to anything else. It's about the kingdom of heaven in a world that's dominated by the kingdoms of men. Dominantly, Rome would be your, your preeminent one. Uh, and Rome was on people's minds all the time. And Rome had a lot to do with uh, messianic expectations, what what the Messiah is supposed to do. A lot of people defined his mission with regard to Rome and what he's going to do about this big problem of this big dominant world power who is holding us in subjugation and is, uh, is you know, holding us down and, and, and denying our freedoms and denying our sovereignty as a nation. And so what passages in the Old Testament are people going to have in their minds with this big, huge cloud of Rome hanging over their heads? Well, Daniel 7 is one of them. Daniel 7 is a primary text, and in fact, it's referenced over and over again. Not only are there times where Daniel 7 is directly cited by Jesus as he talks about his kingdom, even the language Jesus uses of referring to himself as the Son of Man, calling himself the son of man is a direct allusion back to Daniel 7 because the son of man's a really important character in Daniel chapter 7. And so in Daniel 7, um here's basically what Daniel sees. And it it actually is is a lot like some other uh earlier visions in the book of Daniel also. There's quite a few visions in the book of Daniel, and Daniel chapter 7 is is one of them that describes uh, a, a series of nations, kingdoms of this earth. Uh, Daniel is written under Babylonian rule, and Daniel sees, uh, like, for example, in chapter 2, he sees the statue with a head of gold, and he finds out that that's Babylon. And then it has chest and arms of silver, which are uh, the, the Persians. And then it has a, a belly and thighs of bronze, which would be the, uh, the Greeks. And then it has legs and feet of iron and clay, which uh, would be the Romans. Uh, that would, that's how first century interpreters looking back would see that succession of nations. And if you look throughout world history, it makes a whole lot of sense. And so that's kind of the vision that he sees But then he sees this rock that's cut out of a mountain without hands, and it comes and it hits that statue, and the statue comes crumbling down, and the whole thing turns into a big mountain and uh, that mountain represents God's kingdom not the kingdom of babylon not the kingdom of the persians or the greeks or the romans but god's kingdom is greater and grander and super, uh, superior to them all there's an idea of of nations that will conquer and conquest nation until the kingdom of god reigns supreme overall That's an important mindset to have uh, as you approach the rest of the book of Daniel, but then also the New Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel basically sees the same image, only instead of a statue, it's a series of animals. Uh, This becomes a primary image for the book of Revelation. What happens in the book of Revelation is you see each of these animals coming from the sea, only instead of four different animals coming out one right after the other, these are combined into one Dreadful super beast, you know, one dreadful super animal that has all of the parts of these animals. But the first animal that comes out, it's the same thing as the head of gold. It's Babylon and it's a lion and it comes out with eagle's wings. It's it's the powerful, intimidating, swift and, and dangerous predator animal. One of the things you'll notice about each of these animals is that they are predators. They they seek and they destroy. And how do predators survive? By killing and devouring others. That's what the nations of this earth are like. And that's what each of these nations is represented as. So after you have this lion that comes out, you have a bear that comes out. And the bear is chewing on ribs. It's just devoured. And, and that's what the bear comes out. And he is he has one shoulder bigger than the other one, which might uh, represent the Medes and the Persians kind of joined together. And the and maybe an embankment balance of power there. But then you have a leopard that comes out, and the leopard has four wings and a swift and extremely fast, and that would be representative of the Greek empire. And then finally, you have an animal that's so dreaded and fearful and terrifying that there's no human animal quite like it. It's just a beast, a nondescript uh, beast. And he gives uh, several descriptions. Uh, Sorry, I say, shouldn't say nondescript, uh, but it's 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 not like any individual animal. It is itself just a monster. Uh, and it comes out of the sea And uh, he describes all the terrifying and dreadful uh, uh, ways that it it is. And everything that it tramples underneath it. And then a horn that comes out of it. But he describes these beasts that come out. But then Daniel keeps looking. And in verse 9, he says, I kept looking until the thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. So the ancient of days, that would be a reference to God, the creator, ends up taking his seat ...on the true throne above all of the beasts. And as he does so, he gives this description of what he sees as he's looking at him. And here's what the Ancient of Days does. If you look at verse 11 and 12, he says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, which is coming out of that beast... And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, the lion and the bear and the leopard, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. It's like they're not the dominant power anymore. Their authority is removed, but they still continue on. Then he sees the true kingdom arrive. In verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. That's that famous description that Jesus often uses for himself. One like a son of man was coming and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and men of every language Might serve him, and dominion uh, is his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. So you you look at the world and what do you see? You see beasts and you see the the dreaded animals and the predators walking around devouring each other, fighting one another. How did Babylon fall? Well, they fell to the Persians. And how did the Persians fall? Well, they fell to the Greeks. And how did the Greeks fall? Because they're just devouring each other and growing bigger and stronger until finally the beast arrives. And you think, no one could ever defeat the beast, but the Ancient of Days can. And he can give his kingdom to whomever he desires. And he doesn't choose a lion or a bear or a leopard or a beast. He chooses a son of man to give his kingdom to. And this son of man receives this kingdom. And notice who all is a part of it. Verse 14, he received dominion, glory, and a kingdom that people of every nation and language might serve him. You remember the end of Matthew chapter 20, the gospel of Matthew in chapter 28, when Jesus then says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Make disciples of every nation. Do you know what's happening in Matthew? This vision that Daniel is seeing, it's coming to fulfillment. It's coming to fruition where the kingdom of God is being given to the son of man. Now it happens in wildly unexpected ways. Uh, It doesn't happen by Jesus taking a sword and slaying the beast, like you kind of get the impression will happen in Daniel chapter 7, like of of the beast being destroyed and slain in that way. Rather, the Son of Man is the one who is slain, yet through his death, he's able to gain victory over the powers of death. He's able to gain victory over uh, what Rome thought they had when they controlled the world. Rome's, when you think about What gives the beast its power? The beast's power resides in its ability to give death. Like they made a covenant with death. They have a pact with death that they're really good at it and they can kill their enemies far and wide. And if anyone crosses them, they can nail them to a cross and they can leave them there to die in brutality and in agony and in a grotesque scene that people would see and remember, oh, we need to not mess with them because they have the power of death at their disposal. And what Jesus did is he took the power of the beast. He took their death and he brought it within himself and he fully experienced it only in order to conquer it and to overcome it, to show that even the most powerful thing the beast can do, which is kill you, cannot ultimately win. Because Jesus and God through Jesus is going to give the power over not only the beast, but even over death itself. When you read the book of Revelation, it's the same worldview, it's the same framework, where you see the beast seems like it's going to terrorize and kill and destroy, and yet what is it that's able to overcome the beast? It's a lamb that's been slain. Like, like, you have this picture of the beast and all of its glory and power on one corner, and in your other corner, you have the lamb who has been slain, and you think, well, which one's going to win? Surprisingly, it's the lamb that wins, and the beast is the one that's thrown into the lake of fire, and not only is the beast thrown into the lake of fire, but so is death and Hades. Hades which is what the beast used to conquer and to try to to harm and kill God's people. And so all of this, it's an apocalyptic framework that you get in the book of Daniel, and it shapes the way that people view kingdoms and view what Rome is doing and view the cross and view the Messiah. It, It frames the way so much of the New Testament is written. That's why it's such an important passage to have in our mind. When Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God, this is the type of passage people are thinking about because it specifically talks about the kingdom of God being given to him. When Jesus is calling himself the son of man, bringing the kingdom of God, there's no doubt in people's minds what he's claiming. It goes back to Daniel chapter 7. In fact, Jesus does literally quote this passage, even when he's on trial before, uh, before the high priest. And the high priest is asking him explicitly, are you the son of the blessed? He says, I am, and you will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He answers with a quotation from the chapter 7 and verse 13. And I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. That's prior, right before his death. Jesus quotes this to describe his identity. That fills us in on what he's talking about when he refers to himself as the Son of Man throughout the Gospels. Okay, so that's a really important framework to have in mind. And it sets up as polar opposites, as enemies that are going to be butting heads over and over again, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. There's a distinctly different way to view the world, whether you're viewing it through kingdoms of, he- of earth or the kingdom of heaven. So that's why we start with Daniel 7. Now, in the book of Matthew, think about how often these these two entities clash with one another. For example, at the birth of Jesus, someone hears about that, and he's terrified that the king of the Jews has been born. Who is terrified? The guy who calls himself the king of the Jews. The Roman-appointed ruler of the land, Herod, hears that one is born who's going to be the king of the Jews. And so what does he try to do? He has all, he uses the power of death, and he has all of the children in Bethlehem killed to protect his own power and his own reign. Do you know what that is? That's the beast. That's the beast doing what the beast does. That is our introduction to Jesus demonstrates that his kingdom is coming in a world full of really dangerous kingdoms. In a world full of beasts. In a world where the one who is the ruler of the land is vicious and cruel and do, will do whatever it takes to, to maintain his own authority. He's like Pharaoh of Egypt. Egypt was a beast. Assyria is a beast. Babylon's a beast. Rome is a beast. These ruling powers with dominant military forces, these are the beasts. And these are the ones who Jesus is coming to conquer by showing, not by killing them, but by showing a different way and actually taking the brunt of what they can offer into Himself and overcoming it. So you look at Matthew, the first two chapters, you have Jesus' first conflict with the beast right there. You go to Matthew chapter 4, and that's what Satan does. We talked about that this morning. Satan takes him up on a mountain and says, do you see all the kingdoms? Do you see all the beasts out there? Worship me and I'll give you power over the beast. Worship me and I will let you be ruler of all of these kingdoms. And and, and that's in the book of Revelation. It is the dragon who raises up the beasts. That's, that's part of the apocalyptic worldview. Satan is the one who is ruling in these kingdoms. That's why the beasts act like they do. Why would Herod have all the children of Bethlehem killed? Because he's, he, is, he is a tool of the beast, which is a tool of Satan. And so that, that's what you have in Matthew. That's what you have in, in Daniel. That's what you have in Revelation. And it's all the way through. And Jesus emphatically rejects kingdom that way. And then he comes down from the mountain in chapter 4 and starts his ministry, preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes back up on a mountain uh, for the Sermon on the Mount. And and so that you have the—I think that's a a very intentional contrast. He comes down from the mountain with Satan and goes up on the mountain, not for the kingdoms of this earth— but for the kingdom of heaven. Two different mountains, two different kingdoms being preached. Uh, and one of them comes from listening to Satan and giving your authority and alleg- or your allegiance to him. The other one comes from listening to Jesus and giving your allegiance to him. But the conflicts aren't over there. They continue throughout the book, um, leading up to the cross itself where Jesus is again in conflict with the kingdoms of this earth, and they have him executed in the most vile and grotesque ways possible. So the beginning of his life... Herod tries to have the babies of Bethlehem killed. At the end of his life, Pilate has him crucified. But in both of these instances, you have the beast trying to stop the kingdom of heaven. You have the beast trying to stop the kingdom of God. And in both instances, Jesus is able to overcome. In the beginning, because he flees to Egypt and then comes back. In the end, because of the power of the resurrection over death. Even in Jesus' teaching, he's pretty he's pretty emphatic about this conflict uh, as he describes the way we do things versus the way they do things. And Matthew chapter, uh, in Matthew chapter 20, in verse 25, Jesus says, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles the beasts, they lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man, that's Daniel seven, did not come to be served, but to serve. Right there, I think you're getting an allusion to Isaiah 53, this servant He's saying the Son of Man who receives power and glory in a kingdom is the one who comes as a servant and gives his life a ransom for many. You start reading your Bible and asking, well, who's the servant who gives his life? I think Isaiah 53 is a pretty solid text for that, where you find out that God has this servant who will suffer and who will die. And it's in reading those passages together that you see how the slain lamb is the one who overcomes the beast. Not by picking up the, the sword and chopping off the beast's head, no, by giving himself in loving sacrificial death. In order to redeem those under the power of the beast. Uh, And so all of this is it's again, it's an apocalyptic framework. You see it in the book of Daniel, it's in Revelation a whole bunch. It's in the Gospels over and over and over again. Jesus is explicitly saying, the way we do things is not the way they do things. And so when you read his death on the cross, you're seeing this come to a head. When you read his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a constant contrast between the way that the world tends to view and do things and the way that Jesus does well. The passage that we're going to be in tonight is another one of these conflict passages. It's in Matthew chapter fourteen, and so let's turn there. And in Matthew chapter fourteen, we have a conflict between the beast and the kingdom of uh, of heaven the characters of this conflict start off with Herod again it's a different Herod but he is he's in that same line he's he's just called Herod again and we have John the Baptist now what does the beast do when he doesn't like the preaching of John the Baptist he silences him by casting him into prison and then, what does the beast do on a, a day when, when they want to glorify and celebrate themselves? Well, Herod has all of his men come from these different uh, areas so that he could show how powerful and great he is. I tell you who he 's acting like he 's acting like another beast in another book from the book of Esther uh, that started off where you have Xerxes, who, in order to demonstrate his great power, he has like one hundred and twenty seven provinces come, and, and he shows them his glory and all of his wealth and all of his riches, and he wants his wife to dance for them, but she ends up refusing to do it, and he ends up not looking as powerful as he wants to. Thus, the conflict of the book of Esther begins. Well, Herod is going to do the same thing. He's going to have all of his important people come. He's going to try to show how important and great and powerful he is, and he has another woman come and dance. It's his daughter-in-law, and she comes and dances, and they're so uh, enamored by it that he ends up promising with an oath to give her whatever she asked in verse 7. Now, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that Jesus said, don't do oaths. Here you see an oath is being made. And one of the things you'll see is you'll see a couple of oaths made throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. After Jesus warns against them, you'll see an oath here and it's a negative thing. And he ends up regretting his oath because he binds himself to something he doesn't actually want to do, but he makes a foolish oath. Then in uh, Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they use oaths as a way to manipulate people into believing truth, and then they find some technicality in the oath that they invented uh, in order to not have to keep it. And so Jesus is saying, like, all oaths are doing, if you think about the logic of an oath, you're just adding more words to words that don't mean anything to you. Like, if you're not believable without an oath then your word means nothing. So adding more words to it isn't going to make it any more believable, just like you can't control the future. It's like if you make an oath about the future, you're pretending as though you're in control of that future, but you're not. So you don't make oaths. See what happens. You know, Try to be honest. Just say yes. Just say no. Do your best. But don't bind yourself to something that you have no control over. But the last oath you see is Peter during his denials of Jesus. When they say, you are with him, and it says that he swore with an oath, I do not know the man. It's like, oaths are are a problem from that point forward. But right here, you have Herod who makes an oath, and uh, what they ask for in verse 8, having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me on a platter the head of John the Baptist. So, 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 Herodias is a woman who had been married to Philip, who was the brother of Herod. Uh, after a trip to go uh, see his brother, I think they actually took a trip to Rome. Uh, he ended up having an affair with her, ended up bringing her back, and ended up marrying her. So she left her brother. Uh, she left Philip, Herod's brother, and married. Herod. And John the Baptist is looking at that and he's like, "That's yeah, that's the type of thing beasts do and they shouldn't do it. Uh, It's all about pride. It's all about sexual immorality. It's about violence. Like all of this stuff is taking place. And so he preaches against it. He ends up in prison. After he makes this oath, what they ask for is the head of John the Baptist. And so that's what the beast does. And so he goes and he cuts the head of John the Baptist off. Now, the thing that You're supposed to get from this story, one of the things you're supposed to get from it, is here you have someone who fancies himself the king of the Jews acting in a way absolutely and entirely contrary to what the king of the Jews ought to do. The king of the Jews ought not be so flippant with the law that he'll follow his lusts wherever they lead up to and including stealing his brother's wife. That's not what the true king of the Jews ought to do. He also isn't someone who solves his problems by imprisoning his enemies and then slicing their heads off. In fact, what Jesus says you do for your enemies is you love them, you pray for them, you do good unto them. Uh, And so you're getting a very polar opposite by comparing Herod to Jesus, by comparing the false king of the Jews to the true king of the Jews. Uh, But then you have uh, John the Baptist in verse 12, his body lying lifeless in this dungeon uh, as the celebration above takes place. And in that, you get the picture of the beast versus the kingdom of heaven. One of them conquers through death and through suffering and through love. The other continues on in its excess and its celebration and its pride, having used violence and lusts to get there. Right, and so that, that's, these are, these are the stories that you're getting as you compare the beast to the kingdom of heaven. And they're all the way through the Bible. They're all the way through the New Testament and uh, and through the gospels especially. Well, when Jesus hears this in verse 13, it says, now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. So, Remember, Jesus is a real person, and Jesus actually loves John, and it's not just a grand story that's taking place. It's actually real life that's taking place, and his relative, who he's known, who he loves, has just actually suffered the death that Jesus knows is coming his way soon, and Jesus is surely sorrowful and in grief at the loss of someone that he loves very much. And so Jesus takes a break and he goes off by himself to spend time alone in his grief and in his sorrow and no doubt prayer before God. And yet as he does this, says in verse 13, when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities and he went uh, when he went to shore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. just keep in mind what's happening here. You have the beast on one hand, big, huge celebration, showing off the glory. The girls are dancing. Everyone's having wine. They kill someone in the middle of the party. They bring the head up on a platter. That's the beast. On the other hand, you have John the Baptist who has died in a dungeon. You have Jesus who hears the word and he's wanting to go in grief and be by himself and and to to be able to to contemplate and and to go to God about this trouble that he's going through. And the people come and they interrupt him. He gets in a boat to go be by himself. And by the time he gets there, the crowds are already there. What does he do? Does he in frustration send them all away? No, he actually feels compassion for them and he heals their sick. Do you see the polar opposite pictures? One is all about self, and the other one is all about loving service to others. The, this is a painting that Matthew gives us over and over again. And so what does Jesus do for the crowd? Well, he heals them. He has compassion on them. He loves them, even though he can't do what he went there to do. And then he, he's with them, healing all the way until evening in verse 15, and then he feeds them. And he feeds them miraculously. Who's, who is feeding who in the story, In the first story of chapter 14? They're all eating sumptuously. They're gorging themselves with excess and gluttony and all of that. And Jesus is the one who, when he sees the crowds who are at hunger, he feeds them. It's, it's, again, everything that the fake king of the Jews does, the real king of the Jews, shows you the real way the kingdom is about. And so Jesus ends up feeding them a miraculously. Um, I think this is an echo back to Exodus. Uh, For example, in verse 13, when it says, He withdrew to a secluded place. Uh, You might have a different word there than secluded place, maybe something like wilderness or something like deserted place. uh, uh, But that's going to be the same Greek word that's used uh, in the book of Exodus for the wilderness, uh, in in the Septuagint of that, uh, that Jesus is going to a deserted wilderness place. That's that's where the children of Israel were for, for 40 years. That's where Jesus was for those 40 days being tempted by Satan. He would go off to the wilderness to spend time in prayer. Well, right here, uh, as he does that, the crowds show up, so he heals them, and then he miraculously provides bread for them. Who was the one who miraculously fed bread to the people in the wilderness? Well, kind of it was Moses, but more than Moses, it was God. You know, Moses couldn't make bread fall down from the heavens, and so Jesus is, again, even in this story, a comparison to Moses miraculously feeding the masses in the wilderness while they're hungry, but Jesus is doing not the work of Moses per se, but the work of God himself. Uh, it's, an, it's kind of like this morning. We, we showed there are some stories that show Jesus is even superior to Moses and then show his equality with God. I think this is one of those stories pointing in that direction. But then after all of the feeding. They gather up all of the bread and they, there's 12 baskets full. Verse 21 says there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So there's who knows how many thousands of people who are there, but uh, many people are there. Jesus had compassion. He healed them. He gave them food. And then in verse 22, I think verse 22 and uh, 23 are kind of fascinating. It says, Immediately He made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. You remember why he got in the boat the first place? He heard the news of John and he went to a secluded place so he could spend time uh, alone and spend time by himself and with God. And then the crowds are already there. And so rather than being frustrated at them for the intrusion, He still has compassion for them, and he cares for them, and he heals them, and he feeds them. And then it's late into the night, and he sends his disciples uh, on a boat, and he says, I'll catch up. He's about to go catch up in a pretty incredible way. Uh, Then he stays with the crowds, and he sends them back home with full bellies, and then he finally goes up on the mountain to pray. And now, no doubt, he's praying about John the Baptist. He's praying about what was experienced there. He's praying, uh, I would think, no doubt, about what he will be experiencing. That that he can, uh, I mean, John the Baptist becomes a a small picture of what Jesus is about to endure. John faced the beasts and ended up without a head. Jesus is about to face the beasts here in a couple of chapters, and he'll end up on a cross. And so he prays about that. And then when evening came, he was there alone. I think this story, and you could keep reading, and then you get Jesus walking on the water and him encouraging. Like, There's a lot of great things that happen uh, as you keep reading through, and it's hard to find a good place to stop sometimes. But I think right here we get the picture that I was kind of hoping that we could see of... Jesus, by the way, again, back up on a mountain. That's something he does. You'll see it in chapter 15, too, throughout his ministry. Uh, chapter 15 and verse 29. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee. And having gone up on a mountain, he was sitting there. And then large crowds come, and he begins to heal them. But Jesus, off the mountain's an important part of his ministry. Before going to the cross, he goes to the Mount of Olives. And that's going to be your same Greek word there. He goes up on the mountain. Uh, and, he, and he prays again uh, for uh, what he's about to endure at the cross. Like, Jesus going on a mountain to pray is a common scene uh, throughout the Gospel of Matthew especially. But right here we have the picture of what Satan offered on that mountain. You see that in Herod. You see that in the first Herod, who slaughtered the babies of Bethlehem. You see that in the second Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded. You see that in Pilate and in the Roman authorities, who have Jesus nailed to a cross and crucified. But then you have the Son of Man. You have the Son of Man and the kingdom that he receives and the kingdom he offers, which is one for a people of all nations and languages and tongues. It's the one that he gained through a crown, not made of gold, but made of thorns, and through blood, not shed by his enemies, but his own blood that he gave on the cross with that ironic plaque above his head saying, the King of the Jews. The thing Herod was so scared about in the first chapter is now there. In, you know, in bold print above his head as he uh, seats, takes his seat on his paradoxical throne, which is a cross. Uh, he becomes king in the least expected way possible. And then through the resurrection, when he goes back up on that mountain, the disciples see him and now they worship and they see him and they hear that he is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He is that son of man who received that kingdom. And he says that it goes to every nation of earth. In fact, go and make disciples of every nation, teaching them everything that I taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The story of the Gospel of Matthew is a story of how a kingdom came into being in the least likely ways possible through overcoming and even conquering the powerful methods and brutality of the beast. It's Daniel seven in the life of Jesus, uh, and uh, it's a story that, if you're going to read the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be doing throughout the summer, you need that 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 background story in place uh, because a lot of what Jesus says will be a critique and a, even a contradiction of what the beast says the right way to do things is. How does the beast say to treat your enemies? How does the beast say to, to respond to anger or do a slap in the face? You know, what do you do? Well, listen to what Jesus says and it's going to be quite different. Uh, and so I hope that, uh, I hope that it'll be a challenging study for us. If there's anyone here tonight who you look at your life and you recognize that it's not where you want it to be or your relationship with God isn't what you want, you can make uh, a step towards him tonight, and I know that he will accept you. Uh, If there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian tonight, if they would like the prayers of the church, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.